AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with all of us back at our home bases. We have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us for the first time as a member of the Vanity Fair family, our new contributing writer, Mark Harris. Hello. Mark, it is so exciting to have you here joining us for, for award season madness. I, I can't believe you've been, you know, watching us tear our hair out and, and then want to do more of it by writing for us. So thank you. I can always delude myself into thinking that this year is going to be different. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole idea behind this enterprise, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we'll get into plenty of what, uh, what we are expecting and then how the Academy will fail us later, because uh, you've written one piece already kind of about what the state of the Academy is and what we should maybe expect from them and then maybe watch them fall back on their old habits. And we should say that at the end of the show, Joanna Robinson is going to join me for a brief look ahead at the Emmys, which are on Sunday night, and we will have a full Emmys recap episode coming next Monday. But first, we wanted to close the book on Toronto a little bit um, and say that the big news that came out of the festival since we last recorded in Toronto is that uh, Jojo Rabbit was the Audience Award winner. That's this kind of hugely anticipated award. It's not voted on by a jury. It's the People's Choice Award. But the uh, Oscar track record for winners of this award is incredibly strong, including last year's Best Picture winner, Green Book, um, which I will just never forget Richard being basically the only person I knew who saw it at Toronto and saying, it's fine. And then you, <laughs> we also saw where we went from there. Sure enough. Um, and Richard, you kind of landed there on Jojo Rabbit, I think. That movie is kind of similar to Green Book, somehow already controversial, even though I think it's a pretty different movie. After Jojo Rabbit, you know, the audience really went nuts for it. We were all at the premiere, but I feel like you were one of the people who kind of immediately stepped out of it and said, hang on, wait a second. Yeah, I mean, it is akin to past audience award winner Green Book, and then before that, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, in that it is <laughs> Speaking something... Speaking of us <laughs> thinking that things would be different, <laughs> right. and it not being... Uh, it is something of a kind of 
panacea for for uh, a largely white audience that I think wants to be comforted in times of uh, oppression and racism and uh, in in this particular case of Jojo Rabbit, Nazism. And I think that there is some nice stuff to be gleaned out of the movie, but also I think that it kind of rounds its edges too much. It, it sort of, it, it, it should take a harder tack than it does if it's really going to be about what it's about. But I think in the end it kind of just becomes cute and kind of placating. And I can see why an audience, you know, sort of tired from both a lot of great movies but also the world surrounding the, the movie theater would, would vote for that as their favorite from the festival but like I'll be curious to see what the uh, sort of more diverse audience thinks of it when it comes out in November well and I might even have more of an aesthetic objection than a political objection mm-hmm. actually because I feel like the whole setup of the movie is like you won't believe how shocking this movie is. It's a comedy about Nazis, which, you know, Mel Brooks, I guess, uh, was maybe the first to venture into Charlie those Chaplin waters. Charlie Chaplin did it. Well, true. Okay, yeah. So there's a long history of that. And I think it is kind of exciting for a premier audience to go to that and think like, okay, is this going to be like a disaster? Is this? Are these guys going to fall over themselves? And they don't end up doing anything, uh, I guess, that's like egregiously bad. And so you kind of think, oh, they did it. They pulled it off. But to your point, in order to do that, they end up veering into cuteness. And if you're really paying attention, you're like, wait, I don't know that that's a valid way to go with a Nazi movie. And so it's hard to really explain. All I know is that I was sitting there in the theater as everyone around me was laughing their heads off and just thinking like, oh, my God, aren't I? I don't know. It felt like everyone was kind of patting themselves on the back for like being able to take this shocking thing. But it wasn't really that shocking. It was just kind of like dopey, which is not Hmm. good enough for a Nazi movie and was my feeling. I don't know. I feel like the shock value may have been like over anticipated because the the idea that you've got Taika Waititi, who's this New Zealand director and starring in the movie as Hitler, as this kind of like a goofy imaginary friend version, like that is kind of a shocking concept. But I do think the the sweetness of the movie is kind of its main point, and it you know maybe later in the movie gets in this more treacly um, vein, like the boy in the striped pajamas, or I know people have been comparing it to Life Is Beautiful, which I don't really think is totally fair. Um, but I think the like the focus on the kids and the way that like this Hitler Youth ideology appeals to this kid and his friend, who's just like one of the like funniest characters in the movie, this like chubby kid with glasses who keeps popping in and out. Um, I think that's a really interesting point that I'm sure some World War II movie has been about it, but the whole notion of Nazism is kind of fundamentally childish and appealing to boys who want to dress up in costumes and march around and, like, have a shared enemy. And, like, not to go to, like, as a mother of sons on this, although I think that's going to be my tack throughout this whole award <laughs> season. But the whole idea, so Scarlett Johansson plays the lead boy's mother, and she's, like, kind of watching him be taken in by the Hitler Youth and, and kind of agog and horrified by it, but kind of powerless to stop it. And you think about how many people watched their kids get radicalized on YouTube and like can't do anything about it. I don't think the movie draws that comparison, but it does make it feel timely to me in a way that's like, oh God, how can we possibly have another World War II movie? Like that grew on me as I thought about the movie and made it feel relevant and maybe is what made people vote for it too. Yeah, I think the kid was so good and, um, and Scarlett Johansson's really good. And you're right. I think that that dynamic is interesting, whether it's handled ultimately in a satisfying way. I, I don't know for sure. But like, you know, that that was a kind of a new thing to put on the screen to say, hey, you know, people that you may think of as complete monsters might be like knucklehead, juvenile sort of people who actually do have a capacity for change, like don't rule it out, which is, you know, one could argue a good message. So I, I, I didn't like hate it. I just kind of found myself thinking, 
I don't know. I was just like, uh, it was just like, didn't quite sit with me, and I and I'm struggling, R- Richard. Unfortunately, it's your job to actually articulate those things. I can just sit here <laughs> hey, and say, like, didn't love. Cam reviewed it, so I yeah, I, right. I, I, I excused myself from that. I hope we can have a more granular conversation about the movie once it's out and people have seen it. We can be a little more spoilery. Yes. But yeah. I I think that my overall thing was if you're gonna go headlong into a comedy about this era, and there are some moments in the movie where it's kind of shockingly funny, like just little details on it. Yes, you know where you're just like I, you know, that's a kind of risque joke. Um, but like I think the movie doesn't really understand the kind of consequences and stakes surrounding it and I just wish that like in terms of Jojo the title boys like kind of awakening you know out of this kind of haze of you know being into the Hitler youth and stuff I wish that that came with a bit more of a sense of consequence and and there is one thing in the movie that is that but I don't know I just think the movie doesn't kind of take itself seriously enough in a weird way and maybe doesn't then treat the audience seriously enough but again it was a populist success, so it's going to win Best Picture. <laughs> well, and uh, the last thing I'll say is, you know, to compare things that our audience has not seen, and I'm the only person talking about Michael Winterbottom's Greed, it seems like, from uh, Toronto, but I had just seen that the same morning, and that is a brutal, mm-hmm. brutal uh, satire that is very, like, tough on everybody, including the audience, and implicating, you know, everyone who deserves to be implicated, and I just think, you know, as satire, this thing is, it's awfully soft. Yeah. I've been fascinated as someone who has watched Toronto from a distance at the gap between where Jojo Rabbit is in the ongoing narrative of festival goers and people who have been watching this race closely and where it is in the world right now. Because at Toronto, the buzz seemed to be that it went in as an Oscar contender and that then there was this pivot when reviews came out and a lot of critics liked it, but a lot were sharply negative and its Metacritic score was not very good and there was this sudden kind of announcement that it was dead in the water because no movie this polarizing could possibly make it all the way to Best Picture. And then it whiplashed again when it won the People's Choice Award and now it's somewhere between a contender and the front runner. But the only exposure I've had to... Jojo Rabbit was a trailer before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where it was greeted by a full house with dead silence. Mm. Like, oh, really? Like, what is this, <laughs> like, Hitler that is supposed to be fun? It was, you know, I can tell you that the Upper West Side, not the Academy demographic, but an Academy demographic, was baffled by it. And so it was just a good reminder to me of two things. One is... A huge amount of how Jojo Rabbit plays in this race is going to be about how people set the table for it. Like what reviews that run the week it opens tell people to expect, what Oscar press tells people to expect, and also that no movie including Jojo Rabbit is in the race in a void. Like this movie can make the argument that, you know, taking hateful people and diminishing them into figures of fun is the the movie we need right now. But Just Mercy is going to make the argument that it's the movie we need right now. And so is the Mr. Rogers movie. And uh, so are any number of movies that... that so, some movies are going to campaign on just, this is a really good movie and people love it. But a whole bunch of movies are going to campaign on this is the movie of the moment. This is the emblematic choice for 2019 that we should all make. And so I, I'm trying to remind myself that Jojo Rabbit won't won't have that niche to itself. No. And, and I think that's a good, you know, one thing about I think the difference between Toronto audience and 
even the Upper West Side, a sophisticated audience. But the Toronto audience, I think, is very into an individual filmmaker and kind of saying, oh, I love all their other films that only 12 other people besides me have seen, and I can't wait to see what they do next. And I think there's going to be a larger audience that hasn't necessarily seen Taika Waititi's other movies, isn't really invested in his success. This might be their first exposure, and they might think, who the hell is this guy? And one other thing that probably is not a great strategy with the Academy I think one could argue much differently from Life is Beautiful that this film may minimize a little bit how awful the Holocaust was. Right. And that can't be a good Academy strategy, I well, would say. I mean, one bad news event, God forbid, and it's over for this film. You, right. you know, it, yeah. it's it's very vulnerable to reminders which in this day and age are quite plentiful that there's nothing really fun about Nazis and <laughs> and you know that 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 could hurt it or you know it could it could sail along but i think it's a on paper in many ways it is a high risk movie to place an early best picture bet on compared to some of the others yeah yeah, yeah. for sure Mark, I'm curious about what else uh, kind of came to you from watching Toronto from afar. I mean, obviously, you were watching pretty closely to see the like the many whiplashes of Jojo Rabbit feedback, which happens a lot of times for festival movies. But to you, what else emerged from Toronto with that head of steam like Jojo Rabbit has? Well, I think I sort of took in Venice and Telluride and Toronto as a lump because it's all the same on Twitter and in social media and on, on film websites. So it felt pretty clear that Marriage Story was universally well received you know everywhere it played and it just seems like the kind of movie that could sail along very easily through the the prelims and pick up some acting awards along the way and just be a contender all the way one thing that struck me was that toronto is often an elimination place um it, it's where a lot of people see a movie that hopes to be a contender at once and there can be a collective like, well, that's not going to be in the race, and <laughs> and it's over. And I was struck that there was less of that this year than in many past festivals that I remember. It felt like the Goldfinch was the only sort of on-the-spot rule-out, and honestly, it looked very much to me like Warner Brothers knew that going in, just the way the movie was positioned, the timing of the Toronto premiere versus the release date, all said, we know we're not going anywhere in the award season with this one. But I felt like there was a lot, there were a lot of movies that were just like, I liked it, or I loved it, or it's pretty good, or this performance yeah. is great, or yeah, yeah, I could see this doing something. And so it felt, I, I saw a couple of takes that um, the festival narrowed down the race. I did not feel that way from, from what I was reading. It felt like almost all of the movies that that were hopefuls going in are hopefuls coming out. Yeah, and even some ones, candidly, that I didn't think were going to survive, like Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, you know, kind of had a feeling that that one might stumble, and it didn't. I, I mean, no. I think it's it's rolling along. Yeah. The only other one I'd throw in, and Richard, you saw it, is Seaberg. Seaberg, mm. yeah, it d did not fare well at Venice nor in Toronto. Um, but I, I, I know that kind of ruthlessness that you're talking about, Mark, and, and I think it comes partly from... Uh, at least I'll speak for myself, like a sort of almost relief. You're like, okay, well, that's okay. We're, we're going to pair away, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. 
uh, which is ter- a terrible way to look at the work that someone has poured. A yeah. lot of people have poured a lot of time. But like, and energy you need into. to sleep instead of going to that eight a.m. screening of the Goldfinch. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that what was so uh, what was so interesting about this year, having been at Venice and then Toronto, was. People just seem so anxious about declaring anything too early. And I think it's partly it's because we've seen um, some weird results happen at the Academy in recent years. We know kind of we have a sense that the Academy is changing, which is, I think, a good pivot to your piece, Mark. But like it really felt like a very big question mark of a year. And I think right. that th- that's evident in the JoJo scramble, the whiplash, the back and forth. Is it like I-, I felt very hungry for the narrative and I just couldn't find the narrative? Well, th- yeah, like Parasite for a minute everyone was like that's going to be best picture and then there was the next round of people yeah. saw it and were like you sure about that you know there was the kind of the hype cycle which is which is kind of normal the first people who see something are excited to see it they can't believe how great it is the next group of people have heard that it's the greatest thing ever and are sitting there you know thinking entertain me Right. And if there's any part of it that doesn't succeed, you know, they come out and, and say uh, that it's not as good. I, th- I mean, I think Parasite held up well, but I th- there was one moment where it was like, that's going to be the breakout movie. And then I don't know that it quite actually made that. Right. I mean, conversely, I was also surprised that uh, other than, I guess, Jennifer Lopez's performance in Hustlers, I didn't yeah. see a lot of like up surprises like wow this is so so much better than we thought it was mm-hmm. going to be i mean mm. she she was the only sort of major person who uh, i don't think anyone saw that movie particularly as a contender um going in and and they certainly at least see her performance as one coming up but but everything else seemed to kind of play at about the level of like yes you are allowed to proceed to the second round right. <laughs> like, <laughs> in fairness yeah. Yeah. She's very, very major. <laughs> <laughs> one exception to that, and Oscar for this, it might be tricky, but Knives Out I, was a big yes. pleasant yeah. surprise for me. Like I expected to be clever and enjoyable, but it was so clever and enjoyable. Like, and I don't know, like it's it's Oscar potential does seem to exist in a way I wouldn't have said for a whodunit because it's so good. And partly that's a, a, a I remember experiencing this at Toronto. If you're seeing three or four movies a day or five if you have that vigor, um, sometimes you're just incredibly grateful for a fun one. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yes. you, you know, uh, by, by movie three, you are definitely looking at running time, number yeah. of subtitles, subject matter, <laughs> when the last time you ate was, whether the place where you like to get your sandwiches is still going to be open by the time you get out. I mean, a lot starts to impinge on your 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 experience and and knives out it on paper at least from from what all you guys said it just looked like a tremendously fun movie with a great cast in fine form and and ryan johnson orchestrating it beautifully and sometimes that can really land at a festival very effectively i think hustlers benefited from that too and in fact one of our uh listeners was sort of giving us shit on twitter Saying you guys overhyped this thing. J Lo's amazing, but I went to see it. It's like it's a fine movie, and I I'm almost just like, but we knew we were overhyping. You knew we <laughs> right, were overhyping right, it, right? right. Like, that That's was, part of the hustle. That was the fun. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I mean, I think that festival fatigue certainly um, takes you know is a factor. You know, I mean, how many how many people did I watch die of cancer in one week? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, but I think that that was really palpable with Joker where um, well, we recorded last Sunday and so the press had not seen it was it was on there was a premiere on Monday night in Toronto and then the P&I on Tuesday so I you know was coming from Venice it just won the Golden Lion and I was like this you know this is going to be huge whatever and I think it is going to be huge but a lot of the uh 
the press corps at Toronto saw the movie and afterward were like, that was the movie you guys were like freaking out about? Like, it's so meh, you know? And I think right. it's because it was a reaction to the original, you know, the, the initial screenings. And I think that for whatever reason, that just felt a lot more palpable this year that everyone who saw subsequent showings of a particular movie were really reacting to what everyone else said from the first screening. And, and, Again, I think that speaks to the fact that everyone was just trying to chase a narrative that maybe just didn't coalesce at these festivals this yeah. year. You know? Right, and yeah. also all these movies have a lot more steps in their narrative to come. I mean, when Joker opens, if if Joaquin Phoenix is suddenly the star of a movie with an 80 or $90 million opening, which never has really happened to him, that's going to be a new chapter in, in the Joker's kind of awards story and discourse story. I had this one beautiful moment just when I decided to do this coverage this year where I thought maybe everything will be nice. Maybe everything (laughs) will just like, maybe we can proceed through a whole season harmoniously. And then like the next second it was like, incel joker and fun hitler and i thought oh no it's going to be that kind of year but like, have you done this yeah. since uh harvey left the scene oh gosh i uh no i guess not are we counting harvey leaving the scene as two years ago because there was a long exit ramp even before that you yes. know yeah um uh i think i think it'll be interest. that'll be something to watch because i do think that there is so far, no one has fully stepped in to do the truly evil um, sort of opposition maneuvering that, that Harvey was doing, I think. Right. I think we've been out of the dirty tricks um, period for, for the last few years now. Yeah. And, and yeah. Um, you know, Harvey is irreplaceable on that front. So, yeah, thankfully. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, think, I, I think also, as we've learned, you can go through an Oscar season that doesn't have dirty tricks or really ugly negative campaigning and it can still be really ugly. I yeah, mean, Twitter has just stepped into the role for pretty much. Occupied. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, like just the sort of three days of discourse around the Joker when people first saw it was a good preview of just how raw this could get. Yes. Yep. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn.
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Yeah, so Mark, we, we should pivot to the piece that you wrote for us. With the headline that said, the Academy's identity crisis continues right on schedule, which uh, identity crisis might feel a really intense statement for any organization but the Academy, which just kind of keeps, you know, kicking itself in the knees at every turn. Um, what to you is the crux of that identity crisis, do you think? I'm not entirely sure I would call it a, a crisis any more than like a, a caterpillar in a in a cocoon is a, a crisis. Like, it's changing. We don't know what the Academy is. You know, they're, starting about four years ago, there, there was a real drive to reform the membership, to make it less white, to make it less male, to make it younger, to make it less American. And that wasn't just cosmetic. I mean, the, the, the change in the overall demographic of the Academy membership has been real. And now we're at a place where about 35% of the votership is new. It has joined in the last four years. And that group, um, although it's widely divergent in terms of taste, uh, is, is significantly demographically different than the old Academy was. And and we don't know what effects it's going to have yet. We're, I think we're seeing it bleed into choices in really interesting ways. Um, last year when um, Pavel Palakowski uh, got Best Director nomination and Bradley Cooper didn't, we saw a little taste of what a much more international director's branch might do. Yeah. And so that means, for instance, that we have to look at not only a movie like Pain and Glory from Pedro Almodovar, who has been an Oscar contender and Oscar winner in the past, but Bong Joon-ho's movie, Parasite, um, and take that much more seriously than we would have, say, 10 years ago as an Academy contender. Everyone assumed that this was going to translate very simply to more African-American acting nominees. But that's one way it could go. Uh, it could also mean that a movie like The Farewell, Lulu Wang's movie, has a lot more traction than it would have in another year. Um, uh, it could mean that something appeals to the younger end of the Academy votership. For instance, Joker could play better with the new voters than the old voters. Um, there's, the change is so big and so seismic and, and on so many fronts that I hope, frankly, that it makes the Oscars harder to predict than they used to be. I've heard that maybe you can verify this. I don't know if you if you are familiar with this, but supposedly there was a time when the Oscars were sort of out of fashion, not that interesting, and basically there was a crew of people who were in the academy and they just invited all their friends in and for like 10 years you just had a bunch of kind of semi-dicey people entering the Academy who are now all, you know, older members of the Academy. Do you Are you familiar with this totally. notion? Yes. yes, and and it's completely true. And yeah. that, that's why it, it sort of has enraged me um, over the last uh, few years when, when sort of Academy purists or conservatives or whatever you would want to call them have said, well, we're really lowering the standards uh, in order to bring in these new members. And it's like, standards? You know... There was a time when literally voters' wives got in, you know, yeah. with one sort of special thanks credit on a movie. Um, there was a time when everybody in a kind of half-baked 60s TV show got in. And they are all, by the way, <laughs> still alive and right. still in. Like, those people are really bidding to be, like, the world's oldest people. They are right. never leaving the Academy. <laughs> um, and, and, you know... 
I think for a really long time, all it took was being um, nominated and seconded by one person and then kind of being approved by a committee. And if you were friends with someone on that committee, you were in. And I'm not going to like um, humiliate anyone or name names of some of the people who were in. But um, I'll just say that their movie credits are thinner than almost anyone who has um, been invited in the last four years, which, by the way, includes... Like, in the last four years, people like Claire Bloom have been brought in. I mean, incredible veterans who have been in movies for decades and are just being invited now. It's not just, like, young people who who were on uh, a CW show and made one movie. So, yeah, the membership has always been really odd. And now it's odd in a new and, I think, considerably better way. Mm-hmm. How do you think that that unpredictable quality that, that is being sort of introduced uh, – into the academy, into this whole process, can or should affect the kind of coverage of it. I mean, I'm kind of asking you how how should I do my job, but like, you know, <laughs> I, I think that like that was so evident in Toronto. Like we were saying that there was a sense of like people like I don't know what to talk about. Like what what is the what? How are we going to kind of seed this thing? What do you see the, the kind of um, everything the whole economy that swirls around the Oscars changing in light of that sort of new form? The thing to watch out in coverage is that. A knowledge about how the Academy works doesn't become dogmatism about how the Academy should work. Because there is this certain group of people that says it has always worked this way. The really important thing to monitor is how Academy screenings in Los Angeles do and um, how much applause there is for someone getting a fake life achievement award at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. Like the, the, the sort of traditional stations of the cross that a movie or a campaign goes through on its way to winning. Well, like I'm um, already thinking, is Adam Driver going to campaign enough to to win. Right. You know, like, that all those things. And and it's completely reasonable to yeah. look at that. Mm-hmm. But I think everyone should also kind of acknowledge what we don't know now, like the new factors, the fact that the percentage of Academy voters who live in Los Angeles has dropped significantly yeah. um, because of this new membership. The the fact that we don't know really how new members think or like there's so much we don't know, including by the way, uh, how many people who have been invited to joined the academy in the last four years have joined um i mean we we know oh, wow we know the invitation lists and the anecdotally it seems to have always been the case that most people who are invited join but is that 60 percent? is that 95 percent? i don't know and i'm really curious i'm looking at oddities in recent nominations i think last year for instance in the cinematography category four of the five movies were foreign films that's incredibly unusual. You know, so one thing I think when we cover it that we have to remember is nominations are done by branch. You can see, because it's all on the internet, who has been invited to join uh, branches over the last, I think, up to 10 or 12 years. So you can see, for instance, that one branch has emphasized people of color a lot. One branch has really made a push to include more women. One branch has really made a push. Directors in particular have gone international. I think only like fewer than 20% of the recent directorial invitees are American. Mm. That is going to make a difference, but it could make a different kind of difference for every category. Right. So I think the revolution we're going to see and that we're already seeing is in what's nominated more than in what wins. And and so probably we just 
have to make room for the idea that some of the old rules don't apply anymore. But then when we get, I feel like when we get a Green Book Best Picture win, it kind of gets us all a little back on our heels thinking like, oh, there's been all this change, but still they pick something that's so similar to Driving Miss Daisy, even though the membership is totally different. And I think it, it seems pretty clear to me that the preferential ballot and kind of quirks in the way Best Picture is handled is the reason for that. But it, it kind of makes me feel like you can't predict anything. Like it could be brand new or it can all be exactly the same as it used to be. Right. How do you go from being the Academy that picked Moonlight for Best Picture to the Academy that picked Green Book for Best Picture? Yeah. It's... it's I think that is the preferential ballot because if if it only takes, say, 30% of people who are voting to pick a best picture, um, especially with eight or nine nominees, then really anything can win. And Also, a rule that is taking – a new rule that is taking shape in my mind is that the Twitter discourse is invisible to the vast majority of people, including – Academy members, I think. Well, I just don't think they care. They don't even know what's happening in many cases. Invisible or possibly alienating. And I think, it, or alienating, and maybe even more so. Like, I, yeah. I, I think Green Book absolutely benefited after a certain point from um, a kind of dug in reaction on the part of some voters who were like, I'm not going to be told that I'm old fashioned and out of it for liking this movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, and I think. The two big winners last year were Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody. So I don't think critics have a lot of say right now. Sorry, Richard. Um, no, I mean, but, it's, I'm well aware. <laughs> believe you me. Yeah. Um, it's a, it, we're at an odd moment. Yeah. Well, I think you know where the critic comes in or where the um, the journalist comes in is at those festivals because I think that you know. A distributor might not pick up a movie because it got bad reviews at a festival, or they might sort of alter an awards campaign or whatever. And yet, I think even that power is a little diluted when when this air of uncertainty presides over the whole thing. I find it kind of freeing. I kind of like that we can't just dismiss that movie, that movie, that movie, and pare it down. And we're going to be talking about the same four movies until February. You know, I kind yeah. of like that. Like there really could be so many different uh, versions of you know so many different kind of dimensions lying on top of one another to what this season looks like. And I think that the fall festivals bore that out. I mean, like, but, but also, I, don't know. I mean, I think it's it's important too for people to understand. I remember after Cam wrote, uh, Cam Collins, uh, our other film critic, wrote a really pretty devastating piece about Green Book and the problems with it, the sort of racial, you know, his, his view as an African American and 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 you know, reading the story, the real story, et cetera, that this movie had a lot of problems in that department, you know. There was an uproar about that. People were upset with him for writing that. And I remember stopping by and saying, how are you feeling about all this? And he said, "He said, you know, they're going to like make a lot of money off their movie and they're going to go win Best Picture. So like they should be happy. I just wrote my article. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I do think at some level, you know, critics aren't trying to like destroy things. They're trying to show what, you know, the issues are. They may ultimately say given my concerns about this film, I don't particularly want it to win, win Best Picture. But I think there is a kind of, you know, it goes to this whole, sort of whole larger cancel culture thing, like what is an active effort to kill something and what is an effort to identify what the issues are, talk about them, expose them, you know, it, it's, it, it's interesting. One yeah. thing's for sure, this thing becomes a, 
annual liberal um, uh, circular firing squad. Right. I mean, do, well, <laughs> like, do you make a movie like Green Book and call it Green Book, which, by the way, has almost nothing to do with the content of the movie and is like an overt gesture towards saying this is a movie about historical injustice? Do you do that and not want people to talk about this stuff? Right. It's you know, yeah. it's absurd to pretend that this wasn't in their minds. They, I mean, Green Book had an unusual. Um, team of people who were exceptionally aggressive about trying to police negative yes. uh, stories about it, which, you know, I don't think worked, and yet they won Best Picture, so who am I to judge? But I'm trying to remember that the same Academy that gave Green Book Best Picture is the Academy that did not even nominate its director for Best Director. So so one thing we should remember is how how riven and uh, split and contentious the academy itself is. It's like I, I've said this in the past, but it, it's like the Democratic Party. It's it's like a a loosely affiliated confederation of different interest groups that um, mostly can't stand each other but are united in a particular cause. Right. Um, and with a pretty serious generation gap uh, running down the center of it or some part of it. Huge. I mean, there are Academy members who are thrilled that Green Book won and a lot of Academy members who are appalled that Green yeah. Book won. You know, it's, yeah. it's the same Academy that nominated... Um, Roma ten times last year and gave it three awards, including Best Director. So it, it's very clearly divided. I think one thing we that last year really brought home is, as a journalist uh, or as an Oscar coverer or whatever, you can't tell the Academy what it may and may not do. Right. Like they 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 are not interested in hearing that. Um, you know, voting for Green Book will make them look insufficiently woke. They are not interested in hearing that they may not vote for a Netflix movie because it's not a real movie. Like that kind of any attempt to impose a kind of external dogmatism on their choices is going to be dismissed outright. Yeah, I mean, it's somewhat similar to ABC hiring Kevin Hart to host the show last year, and many gay fans of the Oscars uh, and allies kind of, you know, reacted in uproar, and eventually he lost the gig. But it kind of sparked me to realize that, like, ABC's putting on their own show, the Academy's voting for their own show, like... They, they are not we are not part of that you know like we, in some ways we're talking about two different things in a way and so I try not to get like too bent out of shape when something I am not rooting for wins you know but my hope with this broadening sort of purview of the academy membership is that those decisions will feel like the, the kind of weird outliers or the surprises um, will feel a bit less monolithic in their sort of wrongness, if that makes any sense. Right. That I mean, that would be ideal. And I think to that end, you know, at this phase, the festival phase, critics and Oscar press do one thing collectively that's really important, which is the average Oscar voter gets like somewhere between 100 and 120 screeners. And we are still, I think, for at least one more year in the screener era rather than in the streamer era. What festival coverage does in some ways is on an almost subconscious level say these are the 25 or 30 of those 120 that you really have to pay attention to. And if your movie can't float to that top quarter of the pile, there is almost nothing that can be done to move it there. And one thing that really moves it there is press. Um, 
what Oscar voters take away from the festivals if they haven't been there is a vague sense that like, yeah, I want to see that Hitler movie. I want to see that Mr. Rogers movie. I think I should probably see that Joker movie. I think I should see uh, that movie about the death penalty. Like you might not even hold on to the titles because some of them are coming out in three weeks and some of them are coming out in three months. But you sort of know like, oh, yeah, that one. I'd better watch that one. And I bet top of the list most years is the one that is well executed but triggered a bunch of people. <laughs> I mean, that's Possibly. Like, that's probably the best way to get it watched. And, and also, <laughs> like, uh, the the one like Green Book that is a movie done completely in two shots of pleasant-looking actors, right. you know, mm-hmm. talking to each other that will play well on your moderately big-screen TV. Oh, I always, um, I always talk about, you know, just picture a big, you know... Light flowing in from Los Angeles, you know, on a big HDTV Completely. with 300, you know, DVDs stacked up. Like, how are you going to play in that environment? Right. And a lot of voters go to screenings and a lot of yeah. voters go to the movies themselves. But um, a lot of voters, especially outside of Los Angeles, don't have access to screenings. Yeah. Um, and, and they really depend on those screeners. And a lot of voters let them stack up until the holidays. And mm-hmm. then, you know, it's pretty quick. Like, every voter I've talked to personally is in the the last three days of the nomination period doing triage about like, yeah. well, I guess I should see this performance and I heard about this thing, but I'm delaying, you know, and that's the point where, and this year this might be a real factor. It's like, what? It's three and a half hours? Yeah. I just ate a huge <laughs> Christmas dinner. I'm picking Hustlers instead. Right. Well, and, w- and what one can you put on with your family, too? That's I a think. huge I mean, thing. I think, which I do think helps Green Book, not necessarily Jojo Rabbit so much, right? Right. Like, right. So I feel like we're going to be talking about this over and over again throughout the season, but I wonder if we should end on an optimistic note uh, after talking about all the problems at the Academy. Uh, maybe we can go around in a circle. Just like, what are we excited about happening this season? Like a person who's in the running or a film or something that looks like it's going to get recognition that seems like it's going to be a good thing as opposed to all the bad stuff that's coming. Um, I will lead. I mean, uh, the obvious is I'm excited about Jennifer Lopez's possibilities, but you know, it's it's early, so who knows? Um, but I think I'm what I'm excited about really is this kind of uncertainty. I think it's fun. I think that, I mean, obviously the Moonlight La La Land thing was insane, but like. There's been a lot of sort of programmatic, like kind of expected turns with with the, with the Academy Award narratives in past years, and now, from the state of things in mid-September, I'm like, I don't have no idea, and I kind of like that, and I hope to kind of I hope that lingers for a while. Yeah, I feel like it's cheating to say what Richard said, but but <laughs> but I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I'm looking forward to being wrong about stuff. I'm looking forward to being surprised by stuff. One thing I really love about the Academy Awards and that keeps me coming back year after year is every year there are a couple of people nominated whose names I didn't know a year earlier and and or whose names I knew, but I never, ever thought they'd be Academy Award nominees. And and. Uh, the, those are the ones who really excite me. I mean, like everyone, I'm I'm super curious to see the Scorsese movie. But you know, Scorsese, De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci. That is like, you know, an Oscar nostalgia trip slash victory lap. Um, you know, it's it's the emblem of a movie that looks like an Academy Awards contender from the day it's conceived. That's fine, but it's also really fun to see the ones that you never even heard of um, made by people you didn't even know until just a little while ago. Mike, pick something specific. You can do it. Well, no, I, I I think Parasite is the thing that I'm most excited to watch um, maybe after J-Lo. 
you know, I, I really think it would be cool if he got nominated for director, if it got best picture, if, you know, if, if it really could break out of that kind of what we now are calling international film um, box. And, and I think that, you know, some of these demographic changes in the Academy may make that possible. So that's that's a fun one to me. And I also yeah. really do want to know if Adam Driver is going to um, get out there and campaign or not. Um, well, probably not. Did, did he not? I, I, I didn't follow it closely enough last year. Did he not campaign for Black Klansman? Because if, like if he did, it clearly didn't degree. hurt. Right. Well, I feel like the idea with Black Klansman is that, like, you know, the movie is about, you know, uh, it's directed by Spike Lee. He's kind of the character you want to follow. John David Washington's like the big thing. So it, it made sense for him to take a little bit more of a backseat. Like, you don't want the white guy to be the one out there campaigning for Black Klansman. Um, but I don't remember him hiding out to any degree. Yeah, he's known to not want to do very much stuff. You know, he never watches his films, all that, all that stuff. And so um, it would be interesting to see because he, I think he has a really good shot of winning Best Actor this year. I, I mean, isn't wouldn't you say the same thing about Joaquin Phoenix? Yeah, I that's mean, true. Yeah, the know. two of them. In fact, Joaquin might be more likely to spend the entire <laughs> season holed up in a room. The reluctant well, frontrunners. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to bring up the Best Actor race as one I'm excited about because it feels like the last couple of years, like there's been just some bummer element to Best Actor. Like either there weren't a lot of good contenders or you've got kind of these personal controversies around Gary Oldman and Casey Affleck and Bohemian Rhapsody was its whole own thing. Um, but Adam Driver has just had such a like incredible string of performances that are so good. And it feels like a great time to get him in there. Like Michael B. Jordan might get his first nomination. Like Antonio Banderas might get his first nomination. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a lot of people to choose from. You know, we all remember Terry Aaron Edgerton from Rocket Man, even though that film's profile seems to have dropped a lot. So I, I like that there's just such a big crop of people to choose from, and we haven't even seen The Irishman yet. There's a or Jason Derulo and Cats. You know, there's so many <laughs> options to come. <laughs> That's a lead actor performance, right? Right. I mean, it doesn't seem like there are going to be any ringers or or fillers in Best Actor this year, and and or that you kind of have to lower the bar to find five worthy people. And and yeah, there seem to be some interesting category issues with I guess Ford versus Ferrari and and a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I mean there'll be some sort of placement quarrels which are always fun, but but yeah, it could be five very like big alpha performances and, and the, that that would be fun. The placement thing is funny. It's it's like how when you're in a car in New York you hate pedestrians and when you're a pedestrian you hate the cars. Like <laughs> I am totally advocating for category fraud a lot this year. Like I think J Lo kind of is if they ran in supporting, but that's because I want it to happen. But then I'm like if they try to run Christian Bale in supporting so two people right. from Ford versus Ferrari can win, that's outrageous. You know? So it really it's all very subjective. I've, I've, yeah, yeah. I've already engraved the um, supporting for Brad Pitt, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've always felt completely loose about that. Like, I, I'm for maximum flexibility in, in definitions. I don't really mind it when, I mean, like, it didn't bother me that uh, Viola Davis won Supporting Actress for Fences. You know, the, the she she won the lead actress, Tony, for uh, the same role, but the woman who originated that role was nominated for Featured Actress mm-hmm. for the Tony. So, you know, it, the sometimes blurriness is built in, and, and, you know, I think egregious cheating gets noticed and does not pay, but everything else, I, I don't mind the elastic of it. Yeah. Well, that's a very generous uh, spirit to go into the season with. We're okay with category fraud, so everybody do your best, and uh, <laughs> we'll accept you anyway. By two months from now, I'm going to be like, this is an act of murder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, well, Mark, this is the first of many, many times we're going to drag you back in the studio. And it, it was really lovely with, when your hiring was announced that so many people tweeted asking that you be on the show as if we would have done anything else. But uh, rest I'm, assured, you'll be back soon. I'm so delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Okay, I'm bringing in Joanna for this Emmy-specific segment. Not, Joanna, that you uh, don't love talking about fall movies, but we figured uh, this is where your podcast energy was best spent this week. I also haven't seen a lot of them yet, so I'm sort of like protecting myself from spoilers by <laughs> not <laughs> participating. I'm, I'm close. I'm about to watch a bunch of them. So many spoilers for the Mr. Rogers movie. You have no idea. <laughs> Um, okay, so we're going to talk about the Emmys because they are this week. Uh, and then uh, next week's episode, we're going to record right after the Emmys to talk about everything that happened. So uh, more awards show madness coming. Um, but we kind of want to just go through what we think is going to happen. And I wanted to start with what to me is the juiciest plot line, if maybe not as likely to happen as we all think it will. Do you think Succession is going to swoop in and beat Game of Thrones? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be fascinating? <laughs> Did I make not- it up that someone thinks this might happen? I've heard that HBO... It would be as excited, if not more excited, for a Succession win as it would for a Game of Thrones win. Because a Game of Thrones win is sort of like a validation. Uh, you know, they get to, like, repudiate all the critics and just say, like, see, well, we won the Emmy for Best Drama for that season anyway, so it's not as bad as you're saying and all sorts of stuff. Sure. So th- there's that narrative. But there's also the, the looming narrative over HBO is, like, how successful will HBO be now that Game of Thrones is no longer there? Sure, they're doing a spinoff. Sure, they've announced another spinoff. Off. So, you know, they can spin it off uh, until the end of time, but it none of them are going to have the same juice as Game of Thrones. That's just a known quantity, sure. right? Will any and show so, in history ever have the same juice as Game of Thrones? That's the right. big question. So without the, this, you know, tentpole, uh, you know, it, will HBO be able to retain their subscribers? Will HBO be the power player that it once was, et cetera? And then here comes Succession. If they win the Emmy for Succession, it's anointing them and saying, like, no, HBO is still the biggest dog in this fight. Yeah. You know, they can, they can, they can succeed. They can su- survive. Uh, succession is the successor to Game of Thrones. It's, it's not as big, but, you know. Um, and there are a few reasons why. One is that it is universally critically adored. And, and by anyone who watches it, seems to love the show. Um, Not everyone is watching it, but every time someone goes, fine, I'll watch Succession, and they're like, oh my God, I love Succession. Everyone Um, in the media watches Succession, and as we all know, we matter most. (laughs) We are the most important. Um, So there's that. (laughs) Um, And then there's... And it's also something that... um, people in the industry are watching uh, because yes. the acting's so good, the writing's so good, um, you know, the production value is good. So it's it's something that Emmy voters are watching. Yeah, like any anyone, any working actor in New York wants to be on Succession, I'm sure. Absolutely. And so, and then um, the other advantage that it has is that Succession was airing new episodes of its, you know, it's nominated for its first season, but it was airing its season two episodes during the voting window. So people were reminded of the greatness of Succession while they had an opportunity to vote for Succession. Meanwhile, Game of Thrones is both over while they're voting and, you know, ended on a, on a down note. Yeah. So yeah, there's all of that. 
So, you know, uh, the other option, you know, it's, it's not just Succession versus Game of Thrones, right? There's a few other options here. Netflix is stumping hard for Ozark, which is a show that I don't watch, but Netflix is pouring a lot of, well, I do. I've seen it. I just don't, we don't talk about it. Yeah. So I forget that I watched it, but I have watched it. Uh, and then Killing Eve, uh, you know, is another one that we can't discount. The second season of that show uh, was also not as well received as its first. So it's a little confusing whether or not the momentum from the first, the like, oh, we should have awarded the first season or if the overall glow of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, even though she wasn't writing on the second season, uh, will bump Killing Eve up to the top there. Yeah. I don't know. Um, We brought up Phoebe Waller-Bridge, which I feel like is the other potential spoiler people keep talking about, which is what if she wins in Best Actress in the Comedy over Julia Louis-Dreyfus. That to me seems maybe not less likely, but also like so difficult because Julia Louis-Dreyfus is such a titan at the Emmys. Is that something you'd be rooting for or expect to happen? I really want Fleabag to win like a writing Emmy. I think that would be incredible. I think I would love to see Phoebe up there and I would love to see her up there for like writing Fleabag because I mean, you know me, I'm like a huge Fleabag fan. I'm a huge Phoebe fan. So like, I think she should be rewarded, but I think Julia, despite the fact that, yeah, she's a mountain of Emmys, there's just so much like it's the end. It's the final season of Veep. And there's just like, there's the personal narrative of what she has gone through yeah. uh, to get here. That is, that is driving uh, a lot of you know the story around her and so like I would be astonished if Julia Louis-Dreyfus didn't win like even more so than in previous years where I thought like maybe Amy Poehler would edge her out or something like that yeah. this year the final year you know her own personal stuff it's uh you know I think it's a lock for her but Phoebe I mean yeah I, I would be surprised if Phoebe walked away empty-handed and, and Amazon I feel like Catastrophe one in writing, didn't it? Um, mm. I think that Amazon, these Amazon British comedies kind of tend to do well in the writing category. So that's where I would see a win for Phoebe coming through. Yeah. Um, all right. You're predicting uh, what is maybe a spoiler and maybe not depending on if you look at Gold Derby. Um, Billy Porter, I felt like some of us weren't even sure if he'd get nominated for Pose and then he got nominated. And now, according to you, he might win for uh, Best Actor yeah. in a Drama, I should say. Yeah, this is another. This is another um, similar to what I was saying about Succession. The second season of Pose was airing during the voting window, and Billy Porter is great in both seasons. But the second season was just like extraordinary of Pose. And then there's the personal. I feel like Billy Porter's personal stars on the rise, given you know his incredible Oscars outfit or that like commercial the break performance, yeah, the Met Gala outfit, the commercial break performance at the Tony Awards. Yeah, you know what I mean. And then I saw a viral video recently where he was talking about like why he wears dresses and the patriarchy and it was great and so I just feel like Billy Porter himself as a figure as an icon um, is really in a lot of people's minds and you know uh, his competition in that category uh, like the the drama actor category is missing some of the perennial sort of big swingers like Kevin Spacey (laughs) is not in there um, though he often (laughs) has been Um, you know Matthew Reese was a big contender for a while but he got his Emmy last year in the American is over so that's done so it's sort of like a category in search of a big prestige drama actor although you and for um, a while you thought maybe richard madden would be really competitive for the bodyguard and that show got nominated for best drama but he didn't somehow i did sterling k brown is nominated even though like and though he's won like i just don't think that this is us has the same sort of juice that it did in previous years jason bateman is in there again because once again uh netflix is pouring a lot of uh, money into this ozark campaign in a way that like i don't personally see it because i don't live in la genuinely like ozark we should say that too 
Yes, they sh- yes. Uh, it's not that it's a bad show. It's just not a show that I feel like we talk about. And so it's just odd to me when it winds up at the top of these lists. But uh, Bateman's also a, a double threat, right? Because he's an actor and a director for this show. So that is a story that has succeeded in the past, like uh, Donald Glover in Atlanta. There were a couple other examples. It was he's Ansari sort of when he was doing the sort of um, his show. Okay, so let's jump back to Game of Thrones for a second to talk about the supporting drama category. Since there's a ton of Game of Thrones people nominated here, there are also uh, Kit Harrington and Amelia Clark. I think are both in the lead categories, but maybe don't seem as likely to win. Um, is someone other than Peter Dinklage going to win an Emmy finally for Game of Thrones? The only person that I think might, other than Peter Dinklage, is Amelia Clark. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think she would deserve it, and she's tremendous in in the season. Uh, you know, and it's sort of like, especially given what she had to work with. <laughs> yes, and also given that her top competition. I know we're in, we're supposed to be in supporting. This oh is no, lead, but fine. Given that her top competition, uh, Sandra Oh and Jodie Comer, and there's this whole idea, both from Killing Eve, and there's a whole idea of like when you nominate multiple performers from one show, they cancel each other out, which is why in the supporting categories. HBO was selective about who they decided to put forward. And then Alfie Allen and Gwendolyn Christie both decided, hey, like, hey, let's shoot our shot yeah. and get a nomination. And I am, like, delighted for them that they did. But I also do kind of believe in the narrative of canceling each other out, especially in the supporting actress category when you've got Lena Headey, Sophie Turner, Maisie Williams, and Gwendolyn Christie all in there. That's where I think a lot of people see possibly a win for Ozark, <laughs> for, for Julia Garner. And Julia Garner, who is a great young actress, she was fantastic on The Americans. She's been in a bunch of like really good film festival films and stuff like that. Uh, like, yeah, I think I think if she wins there, it will be by virtue of all these other actresses canceling each other out. And I do think that Dinklage is the only one likely to win in the supporting actor category. And then will be the only actor on Game of Thrones to ever have won, you know, an Emmy. and Which is, um, cr- which is crazy. <laughs> Say what you crazy. will about the qualities of Game of Thrones, that's crazy. That's crazy, and he's won it, like, multiple times. And so, you know, it, it's like they... We talk about this a lot with the Emmys, where they rubber stamp sort of a, an idea, and they're like, oh, Dinklage, he's the best actor on Game of Thrones. Yeah. And, like, you know, Dinklage is, is good to great on Game of Thrones, and he, uh, you know, as I said in our Emmy Predictions post, like, he's won an Emmy for a season where he barely showed up. And he <laughs> and I think he did show up for this final season, and so, you know, it would be a shame for him to win for that season and not for this season. So, yeah. That, that year that he won for barely showing up, even he, like, went up there and was like, really, me? Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's a shame because, you know, Alfie Allen is great. Nicola Coaster-Waldo, as you know, is, is my fave. And so it would be lovely to see someone else win, not to take anything away from Peter, but just to, like, spread the love a little bit. Yeah. All right, so let's jump over to comedy a little bit. We talked about Fleabag and how we hope it can win in writing. Seems unlikely to unseat Julia Louis-Dreyfus and probably also Veep, um, which is in its last season. Uh, it didn't win last year because it wasn't eligible, so Marvelous Mrs. Maisel seems to me to be the biggest competition to it just because it already has all those Emmys. That's kind of how the logic works, right? Yeah, and it also um, scooped up a bunch of creative arts Emmys. Yes. Like, in, I think, some categories that people were surprised by. You know, like, Luke Kirby won for his guest turn on Mrs. Maisel. Previous little so, Goldman guest, Luke Kirby. Uh, the great Luke Kirby. So, you know, it's uh, there was, I think, a surprising amount of support for Maisel at the Creative Arts Emmys. And I think that that positions it, you know, there could be an upset. I, I would be so surprised. Uh, but there but there could indeed be an upset. And if it if it comes, it would be for Maisel. So, yeah. 
Do you, you want to talk about limited series? It's a, this is the like true um, meat grinder of the whole thing, I think, where you've got Chernobyl, Escape at Dannemora, Fosse Verdon, Sharp Objects, and When They See Us, all of which were they in individual years feel like they could clean up the whole thing. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, one last comedy thing before we roll on, which is just to say that, um, you know, our colleague Sonia and a lot of uh, very smart people are guessing that Tony Shalhoub will win for Maisel. And he was great in season two of Maisel. But I would cry buckets of tears if Tony Hale didn't get it for the final season of Veep because he's incredible in it. He's won before for Veep, but like he, his work in the final season of Veep, um, our one of our colleagues, Laura Bradley, is sort of cooking some ideas about the power of the dramedy. And the thing is that Tony Hale turned in one of the most poignant, like saddest dramatic performances in the final season of Veep. So I don't know if that'll push him over the top by sort of being a bit of category fraud, but possibly. Okay. And he's forky. I don't know if we've talked about this enough. He's forky. I mean, we should talk, we should always talk about it. <laughs> um, so back to, back to limited series. This is where I think, you know, if HBO, if Ozark doesn't like come through and if uh, Russian doll doesn't come through in comedy, um, this is Netflix's real shot to get some things on the board with when they see us. Um, I think we were, a lot of us were surprised by how many nominations there were for when they see us. Yeah. I mean, it's a uh, huge nom- cast, so you can kind of see how they yeah. had a lot of spots, but it's like every spot that they had, they got someone nominated. Yeah. So, um, so it's pretty incredible. So that would be a case where I could see Netflix saying, okay, we're not going to, get the drama win that we want. We're probably not going to unseat Veep. So maybe we should put our like full push behind when, when, when they see us, which is obviously the, the television Academy is like excited about uh, this series. So I would be unsurprised by a quasi when they see us sweep. Then again, Chernobyl is just so, so powerful. So what if HBO just like cleans up Game of Thrones, Veep, and Chernobyl. That would be that would be a night to remember for HBO. I mean, so, their party will, will rule beyond beyond yeah. belief. <laughs> I mean it's possible. I mean Chernobyl, I mean, a win for Jared Harris feels feels pretty like a pretty good solid guess there. Um, He's so good on Chernobyl. I came to Chernobyl so late. He's so good on it. He's incredible. He's so good. And and what what breaks my heart a little bit is that like I'm 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 really into Chernobyl. I, you know, I, I also really admire when they see us. I, my heart belonged to Sharp Objects, and it makes me really sad that that feels like it came out two years ago, and so feels yeah. unlikely uh, for any wins. But our co-host Richard Lawson um, has wondered if perhaps Patricia Clarkson might get uh, it for Sharp Objects, and I would love that. She's she's fantastic in the show, and so supporting actress uh, Patricia Clarkson in Sharp Objects, I have my fingers crossed along with Richard for that. By predicting um, Patricia Clarkson, we should have Richard on here, but we'll just talk about him uh, while he's not around. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Michelle Williams for Fosse Verdon, that's Patricia Arquette not winning in either of the categories she nominated in, which feels tricky to me. It just feels like she's been so dominant for these two roles at Escape at Dannemora and The Act. Um, but also, like, how do you choose between all of them? What a brutal category. I mean, perhaps, I mean, no disrespect for her. She's so incredible. But, like, perhaps her being in both categories will sort of split people that way and sort of like, oh, I I voted for her for Dana Mora, so I'm not going to vote for her for the act. Or I voted for her for the act, so I'm not going to vote for her for Dana Mora, you know. That's probably what I would do if I were an Emmy voter. 
Yeah, I certainly probably wouldn't do both, even though, once again, her chameleonic performances uh, should be should be recognized. But yeah, and then do you see any of these uh, When They See Us actors getting the award or is it just nominations? Well, I'm looking at the predictions that look like uh, Richard put it in for Michael K. Williams and When They See Us and Supporting Actor, which, which seems like a pretty decent bet. There's three of the nominated there. So that kind of category splitting you're talking about could happen. But yeah, I mean, is he more famous than John Languizamo? That's maybe a toss up. Uh, but, you know, Michael K. Williams has been kind of this TV veteran. He's been on like half of the great series of the last 15 years. Um, I mean, if Chernobyl's really powerful, Stellan Skarsgård's amazing on Chernobyl. I think we both would love to see Ben Wishaw go home with an Emmy, but I'm not <laughs> sure what the uh, the lingering impact of a very English scandal is. So that seems like a decent bet to me. Gold Derby has Wishaw at the top, which is really funny to me because, yeah, it, it feels so long ago. But then again, Wishaw won the Globe. But then again... The Globes are silly. <laughs> you I know, forgot so. you won a Golden Globe. Yeah. I mean, so, I would also you know. love to see Hugh Grant win an Emmy just for how, like, wonderful his last couple years of his career have been. But So an Emmy for Paddington, too, is what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Hugh Grant's made the joke plenty himself. He would also like to draft off the uh, the wonder of Paddington, too, to get some Emmys. <laughs> great. Um, great is there anything stuff. you're, like, personally excited about? I think Fleabag, we both would like to see go home with something. Like, I'm going to be awarding Andrew Scott an Emmy in my living room because he wasn't nominated for anything for Fleabag, uh, uh, which is insane. But uh, I was I was so sure. I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if I did this on this podcast, but I certainly did this in every meeting that we had at the beginning of the year. I was like, let's put Andrew Scott on the cover. Like he is just <laughs> hot priest. It's going to be a thing. And like it was hot a thing, priest but it was absolutely a, a thing. It was a thing for the internet, but not necessarily for voters. But I was just like, this is going to be the thing, guys. And then I was, I mean, partially right, let's say. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not- panned out okay for Andrew Scott. I think he is like a sex symbol beyond what he surely ever expected in his life. <laughs> <laughs> for playing um, a priest. For well, yeah, he already had that like Sherlock juice, but yeah, now he's got Sherlock Fleabag, and then he's going to be in his Dark Materials. So there you go. Um, is there anything? Here's here's the last thing I'll say about like the variety uh, categories, which is talk series and sketch series. Uh, I would love to see something other than Saturday Night Live. Wait. Oh, sure. I mean, so, <laughs> we've, documentary now, maybe? I for mean, their <laughs> this is another their... chance to see. Actually, I, I think the Emmys voting window was closed by the time uh, SNL's latest debacle happened to them. But yeah. uh, that's another spot to see the difference between the internet and the Emmy votership is to watch SNL kind of cruise to victory year after year when, um, you know, it's had some ups and downs in the Trump era, but I think it's currently on a kind of a downswing as far as we're concerned. But uh, the Emmys don't seem to see it that way. I thought the quality of last season was really poor. And so there are there are years when SNL is one. Like the year that – I forget which year it was, but the year the Game of Thrones took the year off and Handmaid's Tale and Big Little Lies – must have been two years ago. Handmaid's Tale and Big Little Lies were sort of like the big story. And then SNL won everything. So that was 2017. Um, just, so that's like the immediate and, pre-Trump. Yeah, yeah. And it deserved it because it was firing on cylinders that year. And Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider were head writers. And it was like, it was doing such a great job. And like two years, flash forward two years later, I'm like, anyone but? I don't know. Uh, at home with Amy Sedaris, which I have not watched a single episode of. But, but I love Amy Sedaris. soothing, So right? sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, Documentary Now, which is, again, like, feels like the most niche thing in the history of the world. And the fact that it continues to air warms my heart. Um, but who knows? Who knows? Okay, one last thing. This uh, The show's not going to have a host, which I think at this point we might all see as a good thing. Um, with the Oscars kind of seem to um, set the standard for being able to not have a host. Uh, anything else we're expecting from the show itself? I'm, I'll be curious to see how they open it without 
I'm fine with them having no host. I'll I'll be curious to see how they open it. Um, you know, I think you and I would enjoy a large musical number. So oh, definitely. Hopefully, a large musical number not involving Sean Spicer would be my preference. <laughs> well, it's not on ABC, so I'm less worried about that than I would be if it were on the same network as Dancing with the Stars. I don't know. Are they going to make like jokes about Game of Thrones? Because I think I uh, like. I don't know. Is is Thrones gonna win? Because we didn't we didn't do predictions for like writing and directing. But is Thrones gonna is Thrones gonna have a sort of I don't want to say universally, but a largely panned final season and win all the awards anyway? I've been convinced that that's gonna happen. Yeah, so, I mean, you know. Stranger Things have happened at the Emmys for sure. It's um, true. It's true. I, I wonder if the structure of the show will be as much about Game of Thrones because I I think we keep saying like it feels like. Eight years it's since over. Game of Thrones went off the air. Yeah. Like it's an like even for you who like loved the show and spent so much of your life around it, like it's a relief to have Game of Thrones be gone. I think, um, and and it, and it's not in a way that feels like uh, one last final, you know victory lap for Mad Men or Breaking Bad, you know, like those big shows ending and you're like, oh, Friday Night Lights, I loved you or like whatever it is. It's like, I'm exhausted talking about, well, maybe it's just me. I'm exhausted talking <laughs> about Game of Thrones and it's just like left a bad taste in so many people's, like anytime you bring it up, it's similar to Lost like a decade later. Anytime you bring it up, people get mad again. And I'm like, I just don't, I don't want, I don't want to talk to people when they're mad about TV. Let's just enjoy TV. So that, that should belong to Veep. Veep had a stellar final season, a great run. Um, you know, let's let's all hail Veep. Well, here's what's especially confusing. Like, it's hosted by Fox, which doesn't really have a ton of, like, I think The Simpsons is nominated, but it doesn't really have any, like, major network nominations. And ordinarily, it would be like, okay, so I'll do something for FX, because that's a Fox network. But it's not. It's owned by Disney now. So I don't even yeah. know, like, what the synergy would be for this anymore, because I'm so confused by corporate structures. Maybe Brian Cox will come out and explain to me how the, uh, the Disney-Fox merger worked at, in character as Logan Roy. Yes, that would be amazing. Or maybe it'll be like a Disney Plus ad. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but but Fox, the network, isn't owned by Disney. Oh, right, so, right, right. So, yeah, I, I'm very confused by the whole thing. And then oh Logan Roy can fire all of us, um, and then we'll start the show. Does Fox still have football? Did I just tell Ye- him myself? Yes. <laughs> maybe football. it'll be football. They don't have all football the football, themes. though. They have some... <laughs> <laughs> and then we will turn it off in deep confusion, and that'll be the end of the Emmys. And I'll, I'll go catch up on Fosse Burton. That'll be my like kind of programming <laughs> for <laughs> football Emmys. Anyway. Um, all right. So yeah, as promised, we will have an episode uh, next Monday after the Emmys to talk about everything that goes down on the show. Um, but in the meantime, take our predictions as gold. And if Billy Porter wins an Emmy, you heard it here first. That does it for this week's episode. Uh, you can find us on VanityFair.com with lots of Emmys coverage and lots of award season coverage and uh, some more new pieces from Mark Harris, which is exciting. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rylaws. And Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Mark. Mark Harris, NYC. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for who should host next year's Oscars goes to Mark Harris. Incel Joker and Fun Hitler. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? 
There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 